Werewolf. Werewolf? There. What? Werewolf. There. Castle. It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson's Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Happy Saturday to you, everybody. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour of a Saturday. Once again, we are blessed, or are we cursed, with Nathan Miller. He is the guy at the board. He is our producer, and today he's going to have his hands full because we are dealing with werewolves, not just one, but an entire tradition, a lycanthropic tradition, the werewolves among us throughout pop culture going way, way deep into history. We'll find out from our guest how deep in a moment there, but in terms of pop culture, werewolves have been popular for a long time, Suzanne. Are they popular with Nathan Miller? That's what I want to know. I Nathan? mean, werewolves and Sasquatch. I've been maybe confused for a Sasquatch a little bit being so tall, the tall guy, werewolves, you know, all these mystical creatures. So we'll see. Nathan is our own <laughs> mystical creature. Whenever, whenever Bigfoot has been photographed <laughs> with a group of werewolves, all the werewolves say, we don't talk about him. <laughs> He's the black sheep of that whole hairy family, you know. That's why I'm on the... No- Radio, no photographs of me or television. There you go. <laughs> well, we are going to have fun only stories because we got the stories and a lot of history to go with a lot of popular history. This is the first for. time we have covered this topic yeah. in the 15 years we've been on air. That's right. Exactly. And who better to bring in to discuss the above <clears throat> than Joey Medea? He is a researcher's researcher, and he's so much more than that. Let me get to the mad props here so that we can start our discussion and just have a good time with a popular topic, if pop culture be our guide. Joey Medea joins us today. Now, Joey is a screenwriter, director, actor, audio dramatist, playwright, and novelist. He has appeared in, directed, and written well over 100 plays and a dozen projects on camera, including the 2014 remake of White Zombie, and his first film as writer-director received an honorable mention at the 2016 Indie Gathering International Film Festival in Cleveland, Ohio. His screenplay, The Man at the Foot of the Bed, based on a true story by Josie Berardi, has been a quarter finalist twice, an official selection and a festival invitee. Joey Medea is also known for We're Gonna Make Your Film back in 2016 and Best Clerk in 2019. That, my friends, is a partial bio because if we read the whole thing, we'd be going all the way to the bottom of the hour break and we don't wanna do that today. We would rather hear from our friend, Joey Medea. Joey, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's lucky number seven appearance. Now he's paying attention. You're our statistics person, and Joey's in on this. Now. <clears throat> I love that. Oh, my goodness, Joey. This so much to be said here on this subject. You know, Suzanne and I were talking, well, what can we do on a Saturday that's just fun? Let's just put it out. Let's throw it against that wall, see what sticks. And the subject of werewolves came to me after I read a post by you on Facebook. It seems like you're hip deep in werewolves these days, among your many other projects. I am. Um, I've been fascinated with werewolves, werewolves and vampires 
are really the big the big things for me. Like I'm not you were talking about Sasquatch Bigfoot. I'm not a real big Sasquatch Bigfoot guy. Um, but there's something about and so uh, a couple of months ago, my Sherlock Holmes novel, Sherlock Holmes and the Mystery of M was published. And that book has a shapeshifter has a werewolf in it. So in order to give that proper context, I really started to deep dive into this um, subject that I've loved forever. And I was astonished by what I found. You have found a lot and you are such a thoroughgoing researcher that I knew you were the go-to guy if we were going to do a show like this today. Let's talk in terms, first of all, how far back in history have you been able to determine where the concept of lycanthropy, of the notion of a werewolf in world storytelling, world folklore first began? It really begins if you if you get beyond the cave walls, and I'm sure there are anthropomorphic wolves on cave walls all over the world. But in terms of literature, because this is really my thing where where pop culture and literature and paranormal folklore all kind of coalesce. You have to start with the Epic of Gilgamesh. So that is Sumerian Babylonian is between 2200 1700 BC. So we're going way back. So you have the title character. Um, but then you also have Enkidu, who's a hairy wild man. And during the story, so you go, okay, hairy wild man, I'm a hairy wild man, um, doesn't make you a werewolf. But the goddess Ishtar appears, and she tries to seduce Gilgamesh. <laughs> and on their first date, in a very kind of clumsy way, she says, oh, by the way, a former lover of mine really annoyed me, so I turned him into a wolf. That's very, very explicit. And then really after that is 1550 BC, uh, King Lycaon of Arcadia. He decides that he's going to offer a human boy to Zeus. And Zeus gets so offended that he turns Lycaon into a wolf. If that name Lycaon sounds familiar, that's where we get lycanthropy. It goes back so far. Yes, Suzanne. Where do uh, Romulus and Remus fit in <clears throat> the son right. of Mars? Right. So they're the founders of Rome, right? Romulus and Remus. And they were wolf cub hybrids that that kind of suckled on their mother and all. That's excellent. That is one that I'm, I got to put that in my notes, Suzanne. Thank you. There you go. They, they were left to die in the Tiber River and a she-wolf found them and suckled yeah. both of them. But I, I believe they were born human, but but raised by wolves. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. That's a good name for a, for a story, raised by wolves. Oh, we'll get to more of that later. <laughs> the terror of every babysitter in the world. <laughs> How about, we're going to be moving ahead. This is like pressing fast forward. Where I find myself engaging with the well, the werewolf legend is in medieval times. It seems like mm -hmm. there was a fascination. And if I may, a very strongly embedded superstition in legends of werewolf-like creatures, this whole idea of lycanthropy. There was, um, to the tune of 30,000 individuals being accused. Now, what's, what's interesting about this is the witch trials um, in the 15 and 1600s, especially in Scotland, some in Germany, you know, moving over to America later, Boston, Cotton Mather, and all of that, 
There is a very, very strong overlap here. So the time periods are about the same, 1520 to 1630, so a little over a century. And again, 30,000 individuals were accused of being loup guru, as you say, in France. Um, and that was stunning to me. That's a lot of people being accused of shape-shifting into a wolf and doing heinous things. Now, there are six or seven famous cases, primarily from France. France was very, very caught up in this old Luke Guru werewolf thing. Um, but that parallel during that time period is absolutely stunning to me. I can see where it would be. In fact, if I have this right, there were still trials and is rather an offshoot derivative of this witch trial mentality or a witch hunt you might have somebody say yeah and he hangs out with werewolves too in fact he might be one of them there that became a sort of shadow aspect of this paranoia driving witchcraft trials and then lycanthropy when we talk about those I've been able to discover that there were still trials, if you can believe it. Now, you know, there is this business of the Enlightenment getting involved here. And yet the medieval folklore was very strong to such an extent that you had some of these trials involving alleged werewolves going on in the early 1700s. You did. It was it was really primarily in the 15. And 1600s, but you have it to the 17th. You actually have a very famous case, even in the early 1800s, of Germany's first serial killer. But he is framed, it's through the context of being a werewolf, of being a shapeshifter. Early 1800s, you're only talking, you know, a couple hundred years ago. That's stunning. It is. And I tread lightly, Joey, when we come to the case in Germany, because you're talking there about some serious pathology and not actually becoming a werewolf. But I believe that this serial killer is one that I read about in connection with the mentality of archetypes there. And one of the people keenly aware of the connection was William Peter Blatty, author of The Exorcist. That when you go deep enough into human history, you find that there are people acting out in ways that would certainly call for not only legal intervention and enforcement, but also psychiatric evaluation as well. But I doubt that that stuff was available back in the day. Right. I mean, this is, you're talking you're talking about a time where um, epileptics were institutionalized. Uh, and there are whole graveyards full of epileptics. They were thought to be crazy and women suffered from hysteria. Uh, going all the way back with that idea, because here's the big question. Were these people turning into wolves? And if so, why are people all of a sudden ceased to turn into wolves as far as we know? Because we don't have modern cases of that so much. Um, there was a man named Albert Fish in the 1900s, a serial killer, and he was called a werewolf too, Werewolf of Brooklyn, I believe. Um, so there is this very, there is this very deep overlap. And in some of the cases, 1500s through the 18 into the 1900s, they saw wolf-like behavior, get on all fours, have this craving for raw meat or for human flesh, you know, we're going to keep it fun. So I'm trying to tread lightly here. But, but I guess to use your term, the array of pathologies are extremely, extremely deep. 
I guess I'm wondering um, when you're talking about the pathologies and, and the dark side, it, it would seem as though the idea of a werewolf, of a, a human person who decides that they are going to act like a wolf, eat raw meat, possibly even human beings, is the, the bridge from um, a human to he must not be human, he must be a wolf. So is that like the origin of the mythology, a behavior of a human that seems so animalistic that people assume there is this shape-shifting going on where a human becomes an animal? I I think that that's exactly what's going on, Suzanne. I mean, you had malnourishment, you had horrific conditions, uh, you had people, you know, that were homeless out in the wilderness doing what it took to survive. So it's a very narrow, you know, I'm assuming that we're going to get into the pop culture, like with the manifestations, especially with films and all. And it's really this idea of the analog of the wolf, that inside of every man is this shadow. There is this wolf, yes. even in Stregariga, right, the Italian, um, the Italian sort of pagan religion there's the idea of the golden wolf who comes out lupercus um they celebrate him in february but he comes out and he protects from the hungry wolf at the door so our our cultures are full of these i got to keep the wolf away from the door uh hungry like the wolf is is uh you know if you think of duran duran that's sort of the sexual predator idea um and we see that everywhere or michael jackson's thriller Right. Yes. Oh, most certainly, yeah. and most elaborately. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, so, um, so the the humans were were talked about in terms of being animalistic because of some human behavior, some human pathology, and rather than saying that he is like a wolf, they say, "Oh no, he's actually a wolf." He shapeshift. He's a wolf. He he does wolf-like behavior. So that behavior caused that whole um, mythology to to come to arise out of out of uh, out of you know mythology and storytelling and explaining why somebody was the way that they were, rather than saying they're crazy. You know. They, they would say, well, the reason he's like that is he, he is a wolf part of the time. Yes, with a caveat. In okay. later centuries, yes, more of an analog. But during the cases in the 15 and 1600s, there are six or seven or eight or nine, if you look at Germany and some other places, Serbia, where and sometimes under torture, So this gets very complicated. You're talking about trials, witch hunters. You're talking about the Inquisition. These folks confess to Satan gave me a belt. I drank out of this goblet. I put on a wolf pelt and I actually became a wolf. I was given an unguent or an ointment or a sob and I applied it to my body and I literally became a wolf. And in the cases, if you look at the, not the trial transcripts, but you look Montague Summers, Saber Bearing Gould, the people of, who wrote the books at that time about these cases, if you look at the case studies, 
there were witnesses who said, yes, I saw them turn into a wolf or that old chestnut from the movies. He was wounded in the shoulder as a wolf. And then the next day we saw him and he had a shoulder wound in exactly the same place. So it gets very complicated. I think, yes, at the end of the day, a very good bit of this is a psychological pathology that's so great that they just call him the werewolf of this or the werewolf of that with no werewolf evidence. But in some of those older cases, unless we say they were all just crazy and making stuff up, we have to consider what is going on. Well, you know, Joey, I think I would actually entertain the idea that people actually believed that that shape-shifting was occurring, that in at one point there was a human and that at another point there was an animal there. And people could believe that, have that be part of their culture. I, I question that now in this year that I live, and, and I think of that as a story but it, it may be that people really did believe that that story was true and lived in that way. Be, you know, beware of the werewolf. You know, I, me living in Sarasota, Florida, I never think about, oh, I got to watch out for the werewolves. You know, right. that doesn't occur to me. You watch out for but, the alligators but, on the golf course. But when you're talking about, you know, 30,000 people were accused it does, is it logical in your mind that there was a point in history where it was so pervasive that it was believed to be true, just the way we used to believe the earth was flat? Is it, is it also believed to be true that people could transform into, into an animal? Yeah, and I think that's key. It's very, very cultural. Obviously, in France, they believe deeply in the werewolf look at a look at american cultures though uh, i'm sure you guys are familiar at, and i'm sure many of your uh, listeners are with skinwalker ranch out in utah right the utah basin and there's the right. big tv yeah. show and all of that well according to nate navajo culture there are these shapeshifters that can turn into wolves i mean that's what whitley streber uh based wolfen on was this idea of that exact thing um and it has a very close tie so they would tell you no this can really happen and and okay. i think some tribal elders today would tell you that <clears throat> but overall yes that's the key if we're a culture that believes in these things that if something untoward happens if something that far outside the culture happens that's what we're going to blame it on and i think that's what you're asking okay Right. If we believe it, it is true. You know, if, if you right. if you believe in uh, aliens are visiting us from another planet, it is true that they are. If you don't believe it, it's not true for you. So, right. you know, there's that idea of, you know, truth being uh, very individual. And we have heard that before. It, it's like, even if uh, even if you even if you sent the people to the moon on a rocket ship, they would come back and say, oh, no, that was a big movie set up. And I was just, you know, fooled. So it, it really is. If you believe it, it's true. And if you don't believe it, it's not true. Does that make right. sense? No, it, abso it absolutely does. And, and I don't want you to feel like I'm pushing 
back on you, but it just, it gets more complicated the more I think about it. Think about Diane Fortune, Dion Fortune, right? Um, she raised a tulper of Fenrir, uh, the Norse wolf, a very fierce symbolic creature has to do with Ragnarok, the end of days and all of that. She was so angry. And I appreciate this as a writer. She had written something with someone and he screwed her over and, and the publishing deal blew up for her. And when she got the news, she went home. She was so angry. She went to bed and she was thinking of Fenrir uh, demolishing this guy as her vengeance. That's how angry she was. And she woke up and there was Fenrir next to the bed. Um, and there was another person who conjured a tulpa in that way to protect her from little um, lamb-like aliens. You were talking about aliens. There was a woman and uh, these little aliens would come to visit her, which is a very ubiquitous story in our culture. And she had this wolf that she conjured to protect her from them. So that goes into, if we believe deeply enough, right, the native culture or some of these people in the 15, 1600s, if I put on this ointment, if I put on this wolf cloak, do I become the wolf? And what is the definition of what becoming the wolf actually is? I, I mean, it's a deeply psychological aspect of our cultures. I was... Um, I Gary, you just jump in here anytime. I was in a workshop once where we were asked under, um, you know, kind of a light hypnosis, just a, a little, uh, a little bit of um, meditation to imagine ourselves being other creatures. And so for five or 10 minutes, we were all birds and we were all flying around. And in another five or 10 minutes, we were all whales and we were swimming in the ocean. And so I, I think with our, our thoughts, our imaginations, we can imagine ourselves being other than human. I, I, I don't have a problem with that. I guess I, and is it possible that your thoughts could actually manifest something like that? I mean, I, I think I, I can only imagine, I can only imagine being a whale if I'm able to breathe air and I'm on dry land. I can't really put myself at the bottom of the ocean and think I'm a whale swimming around. But it seems like you can use your, your thoughts and your imagination to get into another character pretty well and perhaps act that out. Yeah, I mean, we do it all the time in the theater. It's a fundamental exercise for actors is to be born as this animal, sight, smells, all this kind of stuff. I failed an exam in college because I decided to do a squirrel. I studied that squirrel for over a week. They were everywhere on our campus and I studied these squirrels, but my teacher took off her wedding ring and threw it in the corner. And because my head didn't immediately snap to that sound, I didn't pass the test. So it, we can, I believe, you know, it goes back to the native cultures. Um, and also I think of Don Juan, 
and Carlos Castaneda. Yes. When Carlos Castaneda becomes the bird, he says to Don Juan, did I really become a bird? And he says, if you believe it, you did. Now, if the pathology, go, going back to werewolves, if the pathology is strong enough, I mean, how about the stigmata? I mean, the human mind is incredibly powerful. So is turning into a werewolf for a, for a very sick, diseased individual, or if the ointment has nightshade or belladonna, and it becomes a hallucination, and then you're acting out under that analog because you put on the ointment and they said, put on this ointment and you'll become a wolf. That's what your mind's thinking. So it's this huge psychedelic trip. Um, or the power of belief. You know, I believe deeply in totem animals. I've helped people journey to find their totem animals. And sometimes you see that hawk up in the sky. And if you can suppress your consciousness, have the subconscious come out, get into that liminal zone, man, you're right up there hunting with that hawk. And maybe it only lasts a second. So looking as a, you know, a trained actor, looking at what I know of psychology, what I know of spiritualism, native cultures, uh, animal totems, I think it's possible. I think it's possible. I'm curious about the tendency of humans to look at something this reminds me of figure ground theory they look at somebody who might be a very muscular individual apparently bursting out of his shirt someone who might have a wild look in his eyes who might be quite hirsute and it would be easy in just everyday consciousness for someone to think, you know what, I'll bet he's a werewolf. And by the way, what is the latest news? Because it's the year 1585 or something. And I, I only have so many frames of reference. So what is history? What is religious reality? Religiously conditioned reality back then is somebody else's folklore. And I think the linchpin to all of that is a physical resemblance along with certain traits behaviors that would lend somebody to explain such a dangerous, a scary person in terms of folkloric references. Absolutely, right? You're homeless, you're living in the woods, your hair is long, your beard is bushy, you might just be hair suit. Hey, what do we say about all these guys that are at the gym and they're blasting out the social media? Beast mode, beast mode, right? Um, Hugh uh, Jackman, uh, as Wolverine, you know, he's Hugh Jackman is a ripped, powerful dude. And he's got on these metal claws, which, uh, you know, figure into to some of these pathologies somewhere along the way. I think that that's absolutely true. And you're you're right. I mean, we talk about this with ghosts. We talk about with demons and jinn. We talk about this with UFOs. Your religion is my folklore, is my personal experience. This is what I, when Tanya and I had that two hours of missing time, we believe that we encountered alien beings. Mine looked like a stag with owl alien eyes. And it's really hard to say. I've been on both sides of the mic on that because we collect people's stories. It's really hard to say what the, what the light belief can be so strong. I come back again to stigmata. You know, yes. someone who starts to bleed out of their hands makes almost anything possible in the context that both of you are rightly talking about, especially at those times. 
you know, I think we're all on the same page here. After our break, let's talk about some movies and TV shows and music and all that good stuff. Werewolves in pop culture. Yes. Werewolves in pop culture. So outstanding. Let's go ahead and take our short break. We're talking with Joe, Joey Medea, and we're talking about lycanthropy, more popularly known as werewolves. It's just fun on a Saturday that we're having. And no, it doesn't have to be Halloween for us to get into this stuff. We just enjoy it now and again and in your good company. We are Manson Mitchell, and we will be right back. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days. And I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please, get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash manceandmitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Mark Mincola back to talk about the way of miracles and the states of consciousness that produce them. On Saturday, Christine Upchurch looks at the transformation of the planet, what is programming and what is truth. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10, right here on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Tell your friends about Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Joey Medea. Joey, who has been on before, he says seven times he counted. I didn't count this morning. And Joey, uh, if people would like to connect with you about werewolves or the plays you've written or books or anything, where is the best place for them to do that? So I'm very active on social media. They can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, I have an Amazon author page. So just put in Joey Medea, J-O-E-Y-M-A-D-I-A. Um, but really Facebook, Facebook, if you're on Facebook, if not Twitter and Instagram, I'm on all the time and let's chat. I would love that. Great. Thank you. Okay, Joey, here we go. Let's talk about lycanthropy, about the realm of the werewolf in pop culture. Yes, literature, but it seems chiefly in the movies. So feel free to just 
expatiate, Joey. Tell us all those stories. And when it comes to the movies, go ahead and take your turn. We're not only talking here about Teen Wolf. No, no. <laughs> but, but you know what, though? I find uh, I was a teenage werewolf, right? Michael Landon in yes. the 1950s, which is really the precursor to Michael Jackson's thriller, or at least the setup of it, or that very popular television show with some tremendous actors, um, uh, Teen Wolf, that was, you know, a reboot of the Michael J. Fox movie. So so there is the lighter side of, you know, it's not Goonies, it's, uh, and I don't know if it's Monster Incorporated, but Werewolf's got nads, right? Somebody just put that meme up recently. So you can make light of the werewolf. Most movies, though, do not. They really use it as cultural commentary. The really good movies, you watch these movies and you say, there is so much cultural commentary going on. So how about we start with probably the one that really started it all in the biggest way, the universal picture, the Wolfman, of course, with Lon Chaney Jr. Yes. Where we Mm -hmm. get, and it appears in so many films and just everywhere, even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf bane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. Doesn't matter if you say your prayers. Doesn't matter if you're a good boy. If you got the analog of the wolf and it comes out, you're in trouble and everybody around you is in trouble. And that's the big story. So many of these movies, and it starts with the wolf, man. What is the only thing that can save me? Love, love. And there's the girl, the the beautiful, incomparable Evelyn Anchors, right, in The Wolfman. Um, but she fails. And then the remake in the Hammer film by Terrence Fisher, which was 1961, so exactly two decades later, with Oliver Reed. I love that movie. He doesn't even appear till halfway through. Um, we're a half an hour in. But the same thing, the girl can't save him. In both of those movies, because they're you know, echoes of each other, the father kills the son. Now, because of my feeling about fathers and sons and the three Gothic doctors, Moreau, Frankenstein, Jekyll, it's in the werewolf movies, uh, the werewolf stories that the fathers take responsibility for what their sons have come. It's very of mice and men, right? You have to have, you know, he has to kill Lenny somebody else can't so the fathers kill them so there's this very strong love angle then we jump another 20 years it's amazing okay wolfman 1941 curse of the werewolf 1961 1981 we have three famous werewolf movies all come out at the same time now hollywood does this because the studios compete with each other but we have the howling we have wolfen and we have American Werewolf in London. All very, very different approaches. The Howling is very cultish. So these people, and 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 to uh, Suzanne, the psychologist uh, played by Patrick McNee, he figures in very clearly. So The Howling is really the film where they look at, can you become a wolf by believing it this strongly and it has the serial killer aspect it has the sexual um and cultural um 
dysfunction in it. So the howling is very important in that way. To me, not a great film, um, technically, because it was early on. You guys want to chime in or you want me to keep going? I'd keep like to. Going. Well, oh. and I want to, <laughs> a little <laughs> on-air disagreement here. You know, that's what that's what keeps us at the top of the ratings. It's the controversy. <laughs> so <laughs> when it comes to the howling, we have done several interviews with the wonderful Dee Wallace. Oh, yeah. And she comes to a bad end as a, uh, a news anchor there uh, in The Howling, which itself became a short franchise. I thought that was interesting in itself. But I found out a couple of things, at least a couple of things about The Howling. Dee Wallace herself told us two things. First of all, Patrick McNee was a joy to work with. She called him a sweet man and that he was very considerate of people who, yes, were fellow actors, but of lesser reputations. And yet he wanted to know how they thought a scene should be played, how considerate of somebody who didn't need to be that way. So maybe it was native to that gentleman whom we very fondly recall as John Steed in the Avengers TV series. Yeah. And then the second thing was animatronics. And Dee Wallace told me that for much of that final scene, because of the use of animatronics for with the intent of wowing the audience back in the yeah. day with the prevailing technology, that, you know, you look at that transformative scene, she's not even around in person for much of that because of the mechanical aspects of the transformation itself. Right. And I think that that's, I, you know, everything is... Um... You know, do you remember the old movie, uh, The Invisible Man with Kevin Bacon? And they were just really getting CG special effects. And so they started building these movies around it. And what should be a very powerful story diminishes. And I think, you know, when you go to Wolf in 1994, it's very minimal makeup. You can very clearly see Jack Nicholson. You can very clearly see James Spader to the benefit. But um, yeah, so the howling, you know, it 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 took its lumps. And Joe Dante had a certain style of storytelling and all of that. But you are talking about uh, the disillusion of the marriage. You are talking about sexual dysfunction, right? Where she encounters the serial killer, but he has her meter in the sex shop. So all of these things are imprinted all over it. But it does have a very beautiful moment, and Dee Wallace does do a great job, where she says, the only way I can make you believe is to show you. And that we don't see in the lore a lot, right? Be it vampire lore or any kind of transformative lore. It's very that she says, I am going to completely sacrifice my life to save you all by doing this thing. So I think that that's amazing. Then we go to Wolfen. Wolfen is just a very different kind of storytelling. Um, it's very heavy. It's about Native Americanism, um, tribalism, the analog of the decimation of the wolf population right alongside the Native population. Uh, it's very much that shapeshifter lore, and it has a very different tone to it. It looks different. It sounds different. Um and it's and it's amazing in that way. And of course, Whitley Strieber, um, you know, is a very serious guy. He does these great overlaps between lore, fantasy, paranormal, and social commentary. So we would expect that from him. Then we go to American Werewolf in London, which I have to tell you unabashedly is my all-time favorite werewolf movie. 
And every time I watch it, I just appreciate more and more the music. Um, and it's interesting because it, it, it pays so much homage to what came before it, which I love. That was very smart on John Landis's part. Um, but it also gets into this weird stuff. And I know we're trying to have fun, so I'm not going to go too deep into this. But at one point, it's got the weird fantasy of the goblin Nazis that appear in the uh, adult movie theater. So again, you have this close relation with sexual deviancy and the werewolf. I mean, it's everywhere. But you're looking at these Nazis and you're thinking about the Nazi brigades of the 1940s. Now, these guys in those wolf brigades, did they believe they were wolves? They did absolutely horrific things. Right. So and you have to tell yourself something when you're creating that kind of slaughter and violence. So um, I'm just looking at my notes here. Um, uh, the, well, yeah, let me I jump the, in because I've got yeah, something go here from American Werewolf in London. Please. There, I've seen it twice in my life, once in the theater, once on VHS, which dates me plenty there. But what I took away, I enjoyed the film. I thought it was very well crafted. I thought it was a very interesting take on lycanthropy. And of all the scenes, the one that still sticks with me is when he had converted or killed his friend. Yeah. These are the guys he's hanging out with. And it, was it in a movie theater where they are? And the friend turns around and he is really giving it to their, our, uh, our tragic uh, anti-hero there. Like, look, man, look what you did to me, <laughs> you know, yeah. where there's this human element of conflict over what amounts to a vicious and fatal betrayal. Yeah. And and he's and he brings all the people in the movie theater. It recurs through the whole movie. It's a recurring motif and it's absolutely brilliant. And every time he comes played brilliantly by Griffin Dunn, even under heavy prosthetics, um, it becomes this survivor guilt. So is that what's going on? Is he a figment of uh, of uh, David Naughton's imagination of the title character or the lead character um, because he survived and his friend did it? Or is it a reminder that when we go into this wolf analog, when we go into this wolf guys, right? Think about college dudes who have too much to drink and uh, perpetrate an offense on a woman. I'm trying to be delicate here or do other crazy stuff, get drunk and, you know, tear up a town, set dumpsters on fire, all of that. So, oh, the drink brings out the worst in me, man. And I think what John Landis was saying through Griffin Dunn's character is there are consequences. When you let the wolf out of the cage, when you let the big dog hunt, there are consequences. And don't forget that for a second. And when he's sitting in that adult movie theater, which is such an odd, such an odd setting for that, um, unless you really focus on the sexual degeneracy, um, they're all sitting there, all the victims. And he says, look, these are all the people you killed. And that is very unique to American Werewolf in London. So great point, Gary. Thanks for bringing that up. Now you've got me wanting to do a couple of things by the Blu-ray. And Suzanne always gives me a hard time because we have only so much space to store all this stuff you bring in here. I get great deals on eBay because <laughs> I hunt for them. But that's the kind of movie I want to watch again because it's just such a radical take on this fundamental subject in the whole genre. 
It it is, and it's beautiful. It's beautifully done, and and it it does the thing that all storytellers should do. It grounds itself in what came before, but then it goes to new and unexpected places. So I just watched it last week again, preparing you know for my shows um, that I'm doing on the subject elsewhere too, and uh, I highly recommend. Yeah. I think, Suzanne, I think it would illuminate some of the things that you're curious about, too. Okay. And do you have other movies? Because you mentioned there were quite a few. Is there yeah, any let's others? go. There's Stephen King's Silver Bullet. I, I think that that's really Stephen King's distrust of the Catholic Church. Uh, the priest is the werewolf, not to give anything away. Spoiler alert, but the movie is from 1985. Um, it's kind of schlocky and I don't like it. <laughs> uh, let you me know, just say. But Joey's breaking new ground as a guest here. He's giving the spoiler alert after he gives away the ending. <laughs> yeah, because it's 1985. So if you haven't seen it by now, just skip it. You're folks. hopeless. That's right. <laughs> but here's and one I, that it I took. I, I did pick out, you know, the 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 troubled priest. They go, well, there's your werewolf right there. And then I waited for it to unfold. And that was a big triumph for me because I usually can't pick out the killers very well. That That's Suzanne's domain. She's excellent at that. But once in a while, this idea or a light bulb goes on over my head and I go, oh, I get it. Yeah. And that's a, that is a movie, though, um, where the 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 injury that is sustained as a wolf kind of gives it away to everyone, you know, the next day. Um, So, so it's interesting. It's, you know, it's Gary Busey and it's a very young Corey Heyman. Take the ride folks, but don't, but if you really want to watch a very, very, very good werewolf movie, although it hasn't stood up with the critics, which I think is a mistake, but it's Wolf. Um, 1994, I mentioned in passing, Jack Nicholson, James Spader, Michelle Pfeiffer, um, Christopher Plummer, uh, just Kate Nelligan. What a brilliant cast. It was directed by Mike Nichols, and uh, who's wow. a brilliant director. And this is really, this is the analog of the wolf. They have a character from the Middle East who Jack goes to see. He says, I don't understand what's coming, what's happening to me. And he says, look, we all have a wolf living inside of us. So the determining factor is, do you have a good soul or do you have a bad soul? Jack Nicholson goes, I don't have a snowball's chance in hell, I got to tell you. And the guy says, well, (laughs) you know, there are different definitions of what good is. But the analog bursts out through a brilliant performance by James Spader, who's the young protege who screws over his mentor in order to get to the top, including sleeping with his wife. So, okay, more spoiler words, but this movie's also 20 something years old. So I don't feel too bad. Um, But if you wanna watch a werewolf movie that comes the closest, has the narrowest gap between Uh, What Suzanne was talking about in the first half quite a bit of the psychological aspect manifesting as the physical wolf. That's the movie. Mike Nichols Wolf is the movie to see. I remember watching it. I saw it exactly one time and uh, it was quite memorable. The thing about that movie that strikes me is that big budget, number one, Mm -hmm. and directed by one of the greats of the 20th century there you look at that and you go well you know this has so much star power in front of the camera behind the camera that it almost in my opinion it almost swallows 
the story because you're watching star turns playing out. And at a time when, if I may say, and this is a tiny bit of editorializing from me, that movie came out at the perfect time to intercept, though hardly retire, use of the Native American story that concludes with, which wolf do I feed? Mm -hmm. And people use that all the time, even now. And, you know, if you're at a corporate uh, workshop, TED Talk or something, let me put it out there. Please stop using that story because everybody in the world knows it by now. They can finish it for you. So retire that one and tell a new story. But anyway, in, in Wolf, I'm seeing that go on. And I thought there's so much star power here. And of course, chiefly Jack Nicholson, that I don't think there's a director alive who could have kept that from becoming a Jack Nicholson vehicle surrounded by some wonderful heavy talent. You know, the casting across the boards is absolutely exquisite. Um, even Christopher Plummer, who who can play, boy, he can smile, right? Christopher Plummer will smile at you. And what he's saying is, I could rip your head off right now. I mean, that is just a Christopher Plummer thing. He can do that. Um, I agree with you. And that's what the critics were like. The more it got into the werewolf and got away from the metaphor, the more danger it got in as a cohesive story. I, I love it because I'm very hooked. I'm always hooked into the underlying metaphor. You know, the, the new Matrix movie came out and, and some other movies came out recently with very social commentary. And I tried to talk to colleagues, friends, and people about it. And they just want to talk about the film the shots, the people, the actors, all that kind of stuff. I get very hooked into the subtext. And I do think that Wolf does a really beautiful, how about when Jack Nicholson turns around and pees on James Spader's suede shoes? What are you yes. doing, man? I'm just marking my territory. It's like, we all do it. We all, <laughs> yes, he did. we all do it. And then when James Spader becomes a wolf, what does he do? He tries to have his way uh, in a barn surrounded by animals in the hay with Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, so that movie really is to me is the closest to that, to that analog. And here's a little bit of trivia. Let's see. This guy knows his movies there when the, the, the wolf is busted out. Now he's in public. Uh Oh, the wolf is loose. Who played the terrified young policeman that encountered the wolf? Oh, yeah, David uh, Schwimmer. You right? got it from Friends, yeah. a young David Schwimmer. Yeah, you know what? I put that in my note. I, you know, I love, I, I'm going to watch, uh, you remember Crime Story, Michael Mann's uh, with, um, oh, yes. yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna deep dive on that this weekend. I'm, I'm treating myself. I got it on DVD because I still love to pop a disc into the player rather than go digital when I can. But um I love to see the young actors just doing their thing for two seconds because it's inspiring for my students and all. So thank you for that. Yeah, David Schwimmer just has that, he has that little moment there. Um, a lot of these movies gave a lot of people the start. Do you guys know the 2010 Wolfman with uh, Anthony Hopkins and Benicio Del Toro? No. Heard of it, didn't no. see it. That's one where I think it was a star power thing that doesn't hold up. Uh, Emily Blunt is in it, who's just exquisite. She's wonderful. Um, but the story is terrible. It takes the whole father protecting the son 
and it flips it on flips it on its head. You know how filmmakers do that? They go, oh, we're going to take this story that has this very strong positive trope and we're going to flip the bones on it and we're going to turn it on its head. And like you were saying, Gary, about which wolf do you feed? Maybe we need to stop doing that. Maybe a positive message doesn't need to be flipped just so that you can say something new. So now the that's father that it, yes. right. <clears throat> I, I wanted yeah. to uh, I wanted to turn the mic back <laughs> over to Suzanne, who has a contemporary werewolf I, reference. I do okay. contemporary. And I, I was wondering if it was going to make your list or not. And we're running out of time. So I, I want to bring it up. And uh, my reference was Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Oh, yeah. I don't I don't know if you saw that, but you had uh, Remus Lupin, who was the professor, uh, Defense Against the Dark Arts professor. And he was uh, the prisoner was Sirius Black. And according to what I was uh, reading about that, the his uh, Remus Lupin's three friends all made themselves uh, illegally turning into other animals to protect him. Yeah. So they were trying to control him so that, you know, somebody wouldn't shoot him with the silver bullet. And, um, and I, I, I was interested because I noticed his first name was Remus, Romulus and Remus, last name Lupin, Wolf. And, uh, and so I thought, well, there's a contemporary one. And he was really a good guy in the movie. He was not uh, somebody to be feared. And they, they had to get rid of him just because he was a wolf. Yeah, and David Thewlis does an absolutely beautiful job of making him yes. tired, worn out, sympathetic, yep. struggling yep. with his condition. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there are there are other movies that that do different takes on the wolf, and and that is a wonderful one. He's he he's so sympathetic, and you feel terrible for him that he's saddled yes. with this. Yeah. And, and you know, the Hammer movie is the curse of the werewolf. It's very clear in The Wolfman, 1941, that this is a curse. It's a burden. It's not a good thing. But I do think that J.K. Rowling, uh, through that character and David Thewlis' performance, wins the award for what a curse that yeah, is, to have yeah, to deal I, with that side of you. Yes, yes, yeah. I like that. I, well, thank you for letting me bring that one up because I, I wanted to do that today in the discussion. Absolutely, and relevant to so many people who are in love with the Harry Potter saga. We have about a minute left here, Joey. Wow. What homage would you like to pay to the late, great Lon Chaney Jr.? For millions of people, even today, he defines the role of the Wolfman. He really does because he gets he comes home tries to be the good son, tries to marry the pretty girl, and his whole life blows up because he's in the wrong place at the wrong time trying to do a little good. And he is another, you know, Gary, he really does play him very sympathetically as well. I don't think he's the level of talent that David Thewlis is. You know, like he he rode his father's coattails a little, but the homage really is that that's that cautionary tale of, you know, be careful when the moon when the moonbane blooms and the moon is bright. Thank you, Joey Medea, for joining us again. We'll find some other monsters to talk about soon enough. And our best to your lovely wife, Tanya, as well. Coming up next, Jupiter's rising, Jupiter everybody. Rising. Our friend Eileen Grimes will, will be take back the microphone next away from us. We'll be back next Friday. 
Y'all have a great weekend, everyone.